We believe running is freedom and empowerment. We believe running solves problems and makes people happy. We even believe that if more people run, the world will be a better place. We believe in running because it is our passion. This is the Big Peach Running Company Run ATL Podcast with your host, Mike Cosentino. Early morning, April 4, shot rings out in the Memphis sky. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your pride. From the capital of the South and the birthplace of one of the greatest men who ever lived, this is the Run ATL Podcast. My name is Mike Cosentino. I have the good fortune of being your host for this audio affair. As always, I do it with my dear friend and yours, D2 Dolomite. Dave, hello to you, sir. And of course, to you, a great Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Yes, and uh, this is the first time we're together this year for our you know podcast. So it's it's great to kind of see you. So happy New Year, and uh, everyone else who we didn't get a chance to uh, say that to. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's MLK Day, the, the day we're releasing this episode. That's exactly right. And as we've seen, and certainly as he proved with his life, a day on, not a day off. What a tremendous individual. Still so much influence, not just in our great city, but of course worldwide. Still much work to be done, and we will do our part. Another really, really cool thing for us alongside what a great man and Dr. King. We had the good fortune of talking to a great man who is going to do much for our lifestyle as well in this first conversation that we're actually taping in 2020. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you turned me on uh, to him. I may have, I, I know I've, I've uh, listened to another podcast where he's been on, so uh, Stephen Pressfield, and you brought him up as part of our annual plan to talk about the business aspect in you know the book, um, The War of Art, and something called resistance that we all uh, face, whether it's in the you know, business, personal, or fitness and health. Uh, so that's that's what we get to talk to Stephen Pressfield about. We, we do. I love that you mentioned the resistance. And you're right. It was part of our annual plan process and certainly is now part of the culture at Big Peach Running Company as part of what our leadership team has collectively and individually acknowledged. For those of you who are not familiar with Stephen Pressfield, maybe you have heard The War of Art, not The Art of War, The War of Art. That is a book by Stephen Pressfield that has been a bestseller for so long. Interestingly enough, just a little bit of history on this book. It came out actually in 2002, D2, many, many, many years ago, and it has just consistently found new audiences and new applications, the original text, but continuing to find new audiences, at first designed for what we might call generically creatives, those who are writers, aspiring authors, those who are artists, they paint, they sculpt, they do their photography, and then all of a sudden it found its niche perhaps even gained momentum and where I first became exposed to it as an entrepreneur and in the business community and those who are hoping to have legacy work done in and around them. Then of course, not surprisingly, the type of things that he talks about and where the resistance shows up, that can be in a community, it can be in a neighborhood, it can be in a family. And now we see the most recent book jacket that is featuring The War of Art says very clearly, we talk about this in our conversation with Stephen, that you may face the resistance when you start dieting or exercising today. You may see the resistance rear its ugly head when you hope to run a marathon someday. So you're right. I sent Stephen just an email, some correspondence that quite frankly, I had resistance to even hitting the send button because it is really rare that he does interviews. So it was super special to be able to get this guy on. I just said, hey, listen, one of the applications I don't think has been teased out enough for what you can do for others and making sure they understand the resistance is coming and how to get past it has to do with those of us who are trying to live our best fitness-minded lifestyle. He said, hey, sounds interesting. Let's do it. Really, really cool to be able to do that today. Yeah, and I mean, I think what you said, I think it's that that, uh, and he touches on this a bit is 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 fear, you know, fear of rejection, fear of you know, it's like, well, what if I do get him? You know, what if what if he says yes, and then I've got to now step up. I'm talking to someone that is a writer, someone that is an accomplished writer, bestseller, you know, and who has also written screenplays, you know, and you know, major blockbuster movies. I mean, The Legend of Bagger Vance. I mean, that's the one that I remember when when you mentioned the name Stephen Pressfield, I was like. 
I'm like, okay, I, I name sounds familiar, but when you said, oh, Legend of, of, of Bagger Vance, I'm like, yes, I recognize his work. Well, and it's awesome that you just said that because you are right about that fear and the success because once he did say, yes, I'll do it, you are so right on. So I love the fact that you connected it. You mentioned Legend of Bagger Vance. Others of you may be familiar with other fictional works of his, Gates of Fire, Tides of War, Last of the Amazons. The Virtues of War, I could go on and on and on. His nonfiction is well beyond the war of art. We talk a little bit about the follow-up to that work called Turning Pro, but he's also written The Lion's Gate, An American Jew, The Artist's Journey. He's got stuff on both sides of the fence, nonfiction and fiction that is unbelievable. And then to your point, also written screenplays well beyond Legend of Bagger Vance set here in the state of Georgia. A little bit of Stephen Seagal with Above the Law, kind of a cult classic. King Kong lives way back in 1986. Joshua Tree with Dolph Lundgren. He's got so much that he has done. It is a treat to have had this conversation with him. We are going to bring it to all of you unedited. We would suggest to get your notepad ready or get ready to go out for your walk or your run right now because this will inspire you and certainly shows all of us the value of turning pro and getting after it. We'll do it right after this brief message. Do your feet hurt? Feel any discomfort in your joints or lower back when you run? Your shoes might be the root of the problem. Whatever your fitness level, your feet should be comfortable and your shoes shouldn't be the cause of an injury or keep you from achieving your fitness goals. Come into any of our seven Big Peach Running Company locations for a free three-step fit process, including a video gait analysis. Our professional fitters will help get you into shoes that fit so you can enjoy running, walking, or any activity that requires you to be on your feet. Our 100% satisfaction guarantee will give you peace of mind if your new shoes don't live up to your expectations. Simply return them. No problems, no hassles, no time limit. We want to make sure you're completely happy with your shoes so you can achieve your fitness goals. Visit Big Peach Running Company today. And welcome back to the Run ATL Podcast. D2, as I mentioned in our introduction, so amped about this conversation. And now that we've introduced some, perhaps for the first time, to Stephen Pressfield, others who are equally as excited now to hear from him, let him speak into the lifestyle we serve and perhaps into their individual lives, it is time to bring him on. Stephen, thanks so much for being part of this. It's great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, it is our pleasure and so much good work that you've put out into the marketplace and for those of you who are getting to know him, first and foremost, the first thing that I'll say is what a range you have, Stephen, which I think is a great lesson for all of us. If we look at your entire body of work as a writer, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, we think about maybe some of your roots here in Georgia with the legend of Bagger Vance. We think about some of the stuff that you've done that has some absolute truth in it. And then you weave it to give us your perspective and make it a great story with all kinds of lessons, perhaps even being used today by our armed forces. And then all of a sudden, we come to the work that I really want to pull out as it relates to turning pro and the war of art. On the back, and we talked about this before we fired up the mic, on the back of the book jacket for the war of art, it talks about, do you wish you could start dieting or exercising today? Do you hope to run a marathon someday? That's right in our wheelhouse. But you said very specifically, that wasn't always part of the war of art or the audience who would benefit from it. So just to give everybody a little bit of history and maybe to set the foundation, give us the origin of the war of art and what it meant for you to put such a personal story onto these pages that now benefits so many of us. Okay, uh, you know, when you're a professional writer, uh, a working writer, your friends or certain friends will come to you and they'll say, you know, I've got a book in me. I really feel a story of my grandmother or blah, 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 right? How I kicked the cocaine addiction, whatever. And so I used to sit up till two o'clock in the morning with friends of mine who had this thing and I would be trying to psych them up to, because they always had 
you know, what I call resistance with a capital R. They always had reasons why they couldn't do it, you know? They weren't smart enough, they didn't have enough time, et cetera, et cetera, all the things you know, Mike. And so I would sit up till two in the morning, really trying, giving it my all, trying to psych them up. You know, you can do this, you get out there, da 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 I give them tips, I give them everything. You know, of course, nobody ever wrote a word. Nobody ever did anything. So finally, I had like a break of about two months between books that I was working on. And I said, let me just write this book. And then when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I really feel like I'm a writer, I just hand them the book and say, here, shut up and read this. So that was kind of how, how the war of art evolved. But it was, it was really intended for writers and facing the blank page and feeling that resistance radiating off that page. That's, and it was sort of amazing. You know, you just reminded me the thing about the marathon and stuff that was on the back of the book. I, I, I didn't write that. I forgot how that even got there. But uh, I never thought at the time that it would apply to athletes or things like that, but it certainly has. I can tell you from the book is now like 17 years old, and I've got a million letters from marathoners and people like that. Well, and you mentioned it, and the book was originally published, I believe, in 2002, and you mentioned yeah. wonderfully the resistance. So I'm going to read this just to give everybody who maybe is just coming back to this concept because they had read it, and maybe it's been a little while, or perhaps people who are now all amped up about reading more about it, but this will give them even more right now to think about. And this is prior to even book one. There is a collection of what Stephen refers to as books that comprise the war of art. It goes, um, most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. Between the two stands resistance. And that's what he just mentioned. And you'll see throughout the book and almost always, as I've heard you in the rare interviews that you do do, Stephen, that you say with a capital R, and I'm sure that that is for good reason. Tell us about why resistance, not just in the book, but also I'm sure in your mind is with that capital R. Um, because I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to give it importance. You know, the, um, if you're a writer, if you've ever tried to write anything, Mike, and you sit down to the blank page on the first day, you can feel radiating off that blank page a force, that a repelling force. That's why I call it resistance. It's just like weight training or resistance training. You know, it's this force that wants to stop you from doing this. It makes you say, well, let me go have a hot fudge Sunday or let me go back to bed, or, you know, whatever. All the reasons that people don't want to train athletically, right? All the people who have gym memberships and never show up, that kind of thing. So I just wanted to give it a capital R so that it wouldn't just vanish into a sentence as just any other word, but would stand out. And I, and I, I wanted to personify it as a kind of a devil, you know, as the, you know, the anti-force that, we, that we're all up against, that resists us as we try to push forward and, and make ourselves better or go to a higher level. Well, and it, it shows itself so visibly with that capital R. And then with your text, you bring it to us so powerfully. So I'm going to go on from these pages that are titled The Unlived Life. Listen to this. And I think what Stephen just said, and now you hear what he wrote. Resistance is the most toxic force on the planet. It is the root of more unhappiness than poverty disease, and erectile dysfunction. To yield to resistance deforms our spirit. It stunts us and makes us less than we are and were born to be. And that, oh my goodness, that just stays with you. And so now when you write words that are that powerful, Stephen, and we think about how many different applications this has, sure, those writers, those artists, those creatives in the early days, 2002 to whatever it was before somebody said, you know what, this has application to entrepreneurs and those who are trying to be the most and the best they can in the marketplace. And it has application for families and people who want to be better spouses and those who are trying to be a better parent. And oh yes, for athletes, whether they're recreational or professional, it has all these applications. And yet it's equally powerful in every single setting that resistance. So I'm going to ask a few questions that given all of your experience, not just because you're the person who termed it, but because you perhaps are the person who has acknowledged it living inside of you 
for longer than anyone. When you think about getting started up against the resistance, I'm going to say that person who did come into 2020 saying, I'm going to qualify for Boston this year, or perhaps I'm just going to walk my dog around the block one more day this year than I did last each week. Where would you tell them to start after they've acknowledged, oh my goodness, that's what it is. That's the resistance. Where do they go next? I think the most important thing, Mike, is just the recognition that there is this negative repelling force and that it's inside all of us. And if, if because what the way resistance is diabolical in the sense that it, it fools us and we will hear a voice in our head, you know, we want to run a marathon this year. We want to run a 10K this year. And we'll hear a voice in our head that says, uh, gee, you know, you had a touch of the flu last week. And so it's probably not a good idea to go out to today. Maybe you should rest today or whatever excuse will come up. And when we hear that voice in our head, we mistakenly think it's our voice. We think it's that we are actually rationally thinking that. But we are not. That voice is resistance. And it's, a, it's an objective force that exists in the world, just like gravity, just like the transiting of Venus across the sky. And it hits everybody. So step one, I think, is just to sort of to recognize that. So that let's say that we do want to run a 10K or something like that or a marathon. And it's in August. And we know we're going to have to start training right now. The first thing we need to do, I think, before we make any schedule or change our diet or buy running shoes or anything like that, is to realize that the minute we, we start to go out on the track or to do our first day, we are going to face this force. It's going to be in our heads, this force of resistance, trying to sabotage us. It's self-sabotage. That's the definition of it. So the first thing we have to do is, is when we hear that voice, so recognize it for what it is. It's not our voice. It's this force, of this negative force that exists in the universe. And just realize that we have to push through it. We just have to dismiss it. We just have to listen to it and say, that's BS. Maybe I have a touch of the flu. I'm going to go out anyway. And uh, so that's, I think, step one. And everything else that follows from that just really comes from the individual's kind of personality. Some people want to take it easy and kind of go in increments. Other people want to plunge in and you know train in some different way. But uh, each of us will figure it out, what, how to do it, once we recognize that this force is out there and that it's going to be fighting us every day. We'll wake up with it every day. I mean, I've been writing now for 50 years, and resistance is just as strong as it ever was. And it's never going to diminish and never going to go away. And I know that. Well, and I love the fact that you indicated that each of us will fight it differently. And you indicate in your book, The War of Art, that it's even greater towards the end. So you mentioned as an example, let's say there's that 10K that we want to do in the summer. And it's a perfect example for those of us here in Atlanta, the world's largest 10K. If you ever want to do it, Stephen, know that it's on D2 and I, but it's the Peachtree Road Race every July 4th in Atlanta, 60,000 plus runners. So use that as a tangible example for Atlantans everywhere. As we get closer to July 4th, Stephen indicates on the pages of his book, it is only going to get harder as we get closer to actually beating resistance and accomplishing that goal. But what's even perhaps more encouraging than knowing that it's going to get harder and having that advanced knowledge is something that landed on me the first time I read it. Oh my goodness, so powerfully. And that is that resistance actually comes second. So would you just teach all of us and remind me why that's true, that if resistance comes second, what is it that actually happens or comes first? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Mike, and uh, let me see if I can do this. What I, what I meant by resistance comes second is that what comes first is the dream. It's our dream. For instance, if someone decides, I'm going to run this 10K in Atlanta, uh, that's the dream. And immediately, resistance comes second, right after that. Like I, the analogy I, I use is if there's a tree, imagine a tree standing in the middle of a meadow in a, on a sunlit day, that tree is going to cast a shadow, inevitably, right? So that tree is the dream, and the shadow is resistance. So resistance comes, as soon as we have the dream, 
resistance immediately pops into existence to stop us from fulfilling that dream. So the, the important thing to remember when we're experiencing resistance, when we feel like, I don't want to run today, I don't want to train today, I don't want to write that book today, is to remember that we wouldn't be feeling that resistance if there wasn't a dream. So the strength of that resistance, when we feel it strongly inside us, is a good thing in a way because it tells us that we have a big dream. We feel the amount of resistance. It'd be no problem. So when we have a great dream, like to write War and Peace or to, to run the Boston Marathon, then we're going to have a lot of resistance. It's going it, to, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, equal and opposite, like Newton's first law or third law, whatever the hell it was. Um, but the big thing again is resistance comes second. The dream comes first. Well, so we think about the fact that dream comes first and resistance then is guaranteed. Another thing I believe for our audience, I know for me, if we look at that pedestrian active lifestyle that we not only intend to live out and much of our audience would say, yeah, me too. They also want to share it with others. And if we think about how do we encourage people that are really at ground zero right now or haven't taken that first step literally and figuratively, you're a big proponent. In fact, I've heard you say regularly, of course, it's on the pages of your books, that talent doesn't matter. And I think for someone who currently is, by their own admission, overweight, by someone who wonders whether that bum knee is actually gonna hold up, or the fact that they're well into their adulthood, but have never engaged in much fitness, they would think, well, talent must matter, because what they go by are those they see who have been doing it for years, or what might be splashed across the internet or on TV this weekend. Would you mind coaching us a little bit on when we hear talent doesn't matter, it may mean one thing, but when it comes from a master like yourself, now all of a sudden it has real context. What do you mean when you say talent doesn't matter? And especially well, for that person right now, right. he's like, yeah, oh my goodness, if I haven't done anything in a fitness minded manner ever, how can you tell me that to be true? Well, I mean, obviously, talent does matter to a certain level. If we're Bo Jackson, you know, we can <laughs> do something that, that maybe you and I can't do. But to, think, to say to ourselves, I haven't got the talent, therefore I'm not going to do this, is a form of resistance. That's a classic excuse, a classic cop-out, right? And it's been my experience that just simply hard work and perseverance conquers everything, you know? And so, but I'm, you were saying before, Mike, like how can you influence somebody to like get off the couch? In a way, I think that's one of the hardest and most thankless tasks of all. Like I just told you when I would stay up till two in the morning trying to psych up my friends to write books and like none of them ever wrote a word. Um, the only thing that, that has ever worked for me is to, is to act by example, to lead by example. And that is just to do it yourself and be a model for person, for other people who can just sort of say, well, geez, if this guy can do it, I can do it, you know? That, that seems to me to be the only way to, you know, if you're trying to influence your spouse, you know, just get out and do it. Maybe one day she or he will say, well, hell, if he or she can do it, I'll do it too. Well, and, and I think, and maybe you would say, no, that's not true, or perhaps it's going to vary by individual, that our dreams are consistent with our potential. And maybe that's just this God-given gift that we get. You know, for me, I don't dream of making the Olympic marathon team. It just doesn't happen. I might fantasize what it would be like at some point to, you know, be in the opening ceremonies, but it's not really a dream. But what I might dream is of finishing a marathon or qualifying for Boston. And now, because that is a dream... I also have that potential. And now it's where talent doesn't matter. What does requ is required is that hard work that you're talking about. Would you say there's any truth to that? Or are there people who, quite frankly, do dream well beyond or maybe even just an arm's length beyond their potential? I would agree with it completely. In fact, if you want to take a step backward and say, well, where does the dream come from? You know, the dream comes from some part of our, our soul, our psyche, our unconscious that is trying to take us to the next higher level. And I think that part of our, of our soul or our psyche kind of 
knows our limits, you know. It's not going to say, you know, we're going to be playing with LeBron James in the NBA next year. But, you know, maybe we can run a 10K or something like that. So the dream arises spontaneously, I think, from the deepest and best part of our of our psyche. You know, um, it isn't like we consciously say, oh, I'm going to run a marathon. We just sort of it sort of percolates up out of somewhere, doesn't it? You know, maybe we read about it or something like that or. We've seen a friend, suddenly it, it, it pops in our head in kind of a full-blown form of, uh, I'm going to do this, you know? So if if it's there, then we must be capable of doing it, or it wouldn't be there. Well, and you mentioned earlier, and you mentioned it really casually, but we know it's incredibly difficult, and that is the persistence, that you've got to do the hard work. And part of your gift, in my opinion, to me, is not just the War of Art and where it talks about this, but also an entire treatise dedicated to turning pro. Because when we first hear that, we think, okay, well, the Olympic marathon trials are in Atlanta. When we talk about turning pro, we must be thinking about those who have qualified for that. Or perhaps in a major market, you're in Southern California, here we are, where we have professional sports teams all around both of these areas where we live. That's not necessarily what you mean when you think about turning pro. Would you mind giving us indication how you connect that persistence and hard work required with a lifestyle okay, that is question. turning pro? It's a great question, Mike. You're right on target here. Um, um, the Once we sort of accept the idea that there is this thing called resistance, there is this innate tendency in all of us to sabotage ourselves. For, for our dreams or our best parts of ourselves. Then the next question is, well, how do you overcome that? And my answer is to, you sort of change, you change your mindset. I think people who, let's say, who want to run a 10K, want to run a marathon and have failed, you know, who have kind of dropped out along the way, I think, and I speak about myself too in that, in that context, the mistake they're making, I think, a lot of times, is they're thinking like an amateur instead of like a like a pro. So that an amateur is kind of a a weekend warrior. They will just come out when it when it feels right, when the sun is shining. But a pro, if it's Kobe Bryant, if it's LeBron James, name anybody anybody you want, they're there every day, right? That's part of being a professional. They're there every day. They're there for the full ride every day. They play hurt. They face adversity. They have a professional mindset. So I say, actually, Turning Pro is a follow-up book to the world part. And one of the things I say in that book is that Turning Pro is free, but it doesn't come without cost. And you have to really sort of change. Once you turn pro in your mind, you change your life. And you change the time of day that you wake up. You change the time of day that you go to sleep. You change what you eat. You change how you live. You change what your habits are. So to me, it's it's a it's free. You don't have to take a course. You don't have to do anything. I don't mean literally turn pro. I mean mentally throw the switch in your head that says when uh, that says, uh, am I going to run today? Am I going to train today? And the answer is, would a professional train today? If I were a pro, would I get up when it's 10 degrees outside and it's, you know, 4.30 in the morning? And the answer is, if I'm a pro, I am going to get up. If I'm an amateur, I'm going to lay in bed. Well, and let that just sit with you for a second. Go back, rewind that, listen to it again, and then think about that every single time. Heck, D2, that you want to pull the covers back over your head because it's another morning of rain or it is the middle of winter and it's dark. We now know, we just heard it from the expert, perhaps, that that is an amateur move. And I would imagine, Stephen, that stings all day, perhaps for the rest of the week, if you know that you had this opportunity to behave like a pro, but instead chose what an amateur would. The other thing about thinking of things, about uh, thinking of the way we act as being an amateur or a pro, an amateur has amateur habits and a pro has professional habits. And... What we're going to do if we change, flip the switch in our mind and become a professional is we're going to adopt professional habits. You know, we're going to take care of ourselves. We're going to eat in a different way. We're going to train in a different way. And um, 
The other thing I think that's very helpful in thinking in terms of turning pro as opposed to being an amateur is it kind of takes the judgment and the blame out of things. It's not like there's anything wrong with us or we're weak or we're sick or you know anything like that. It's just that we were kind of thinking in the wrong way. We were thinking like an amateur. So if adversity came to us, we would just fold, you know. But if we can just flip that switch and say, I'm a pro, then when adversity comes, we go, okay, I know what a pro does in this case. They do their thing. And um, so it takes the blame out of it and the self-judgment. Um, well, now I'm going to... In any gonna... event, that's, that's kind of what worked for me. So it's helping me turn the corner. Well, and I'm hoping... I'll give you another analogy. Okay. Here's another analogy. It's a little bit like like uh, joining AA. You know, if you if you and I wake up one morning in the gutter with two bottles of Jack Daniels, empty bottles beside us, we might say to ourselves, "Oh my God, I've got a problem with alcohol." You know, and in that moment, if we say to ourselves, "Okay, this has got to stop. I'm ending this right now," that's kind of a moment of turning pro. You know where we really take it seriously and we change our lives completely from there, from there on. And just as in AA there, one of the things they say is one day at a time, right? Which is so true. It's true for athletes, right? Each day we may have trained great on Tuesday, but Wednesday morning when we wake up, we're going to have that same resistance, right? We have to, you know, make ourselves get out on the track and do whatever it is we're going to do. So it's, it's a one day at a time type of thing. But once you have sort of committed to sobriety, so to speak, then every day adds to that. It's like you see people in AA will say, well, I've got 23 years of sobriety or something like that. But they always know that they can fall back. They can fall off the wagon at any moment. And uh, it's the same for us as writers or as artists and the same for us as athletes. So if we think about the concept of keystone habits and we'll continue to use running or let's just say our fitness and we say, you know, I'm turning pro starting at this moment or starting tomorrow and now I get up earlier, I go for a run, I even get some consistency with that. I think the cool thing about turning pro is that just like the mindset behind this keystone principle, now all of a sudden I'm starting to eat better. Now I'm starting to get to bed at a more reasonable hour. Now I'm maybe drinking less on weekends, whatever it might be. These other good habits come to follow behind that keystone principle or in your context, that decision to turn pro. So now I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to admit right now, this is a completely selfish, very personal question. And this is what I wrestle with now on a regular basis and thinking about the time that I've been aware of your material, tried to live it out, tried to be super mindful of it, perhaps even share it with others. There are those instances, and I love that you oftentimes will use the analogy of, well, as a writer, we can sit down, face the blank page or do more of our work, or we could go out and have a drink. The pro elects to do the work. The amateur goes out and has the drink. For me, even this morning I get up, I get up at what some would say is a very early hour, but now I'm thinking, should I go for the run? That's a decision a professional would make. Of course I should. I've got a race that I'm training for. It's the lifestyle I lead. Obviously in this market, I'm an ambassador for such, perhaps even a little bit of an influence to others as to whether I make the right decision. But then also I hear that voice that says, yeah, but we've got three more of our business units that are presenting their annual plans today. Am I as boned up on each of those business units and their performance from last year and their potential as I need to be? Maybe I should get over there and go through some of these facts and figures one more time. And then there's another voice that all of a sudden somehow ends up in my mind. My son's a junior in high school and there are three things that are part of the application process I know so little about right now and feel way behind on being a father figure to him as he navigates these choppy waters of college admission. So now at 445, I'm standing in the middle of my bedroom. What do I choose? Do I choose putting on the running shorts? Do I choose going over to the laptop? Do I choose go to the laptop and go into those reports that I have on the cloud or going over to this site that's put up by the state of Georgia to help me get more familiar with the college admissions process? How do we determine priorities alongside our decision to turn pro? Well, that's, that's another great question, Mike, and you hit the, the, the word exactly is priorities. And, you know, it, it probably is a, a priority more to help out your son, you know, than running. It probably is. But um, so I think 
in a way, we have to kind of compartmentalize our day. And it's really tough when you have, I mean, think about, you, you know, you have a family. I'm speaking to you now. Mike. You have a family, you have a business, and then you have your, your vocation as a runner. And so, so it's one way or another, you have to kind of compartmentalize that and be able to say, okay, um, from five in the morning to six in the morning, that's when I run. And I'm going to carve that space out. And if, 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 uh, if I'm going to do, do that today on Wednesday, then I know that maybe Tuesday night I've got to go to that website about applications that my son's working on, you know? So like James Patterson, the writer, if you heard of him? Sure. You know, I sold 20 gazillion books. <laughs> I used to be a big executive at J. Walter Thompson ad agency in New York. And he had never written a book, you know, and was just an aspiring guy, right? But he would come in at, you know, five in the morning to the office and he had like 45 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes and he would just write in that time. And once that was over, then he, then he did his other obligations, his work, his family, so on and so forth. So it's, it, it's a tough one. It's a tough thing to do when you're not a full-time pro and you don't have all day to do it. But I think it's just a question of kind of compartmentalizing and 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 preserving a certain block of time to do your thing, to do your running thing. And so you would say that you can turn pro and be a professional in multiple areas of your life at the same time, or at least within the same season. Definitely. One here's one of the things I I say. Uh, um, if you, I don't know if you do you know Steven Soderbergh is a Hollywood director. He's he directed, uh, he won an Oscar for Traffic, and he's directed a million really good movies. And when he won his Oscar, whenever that was, about 10 years ago, he came up to the state, to the podium there, and he held up the, the award, and he said, this is for everybody who puts in one hour a day on their art. And then he, you know, he said thank you and sat down. And I, I, when I heard that, I thought, this, that is exactly right. That's, that's, you know, that's, if we can just do an hour, then we're, you know, you're an artist, you're a runner, you know, you can call yourself that because we all have obligations, family and, and profession and stuff like that. But there's 24 hours in a day, you know, there's not only three hours in a day, it's 24 and we can find a way to, to do our, our calling, whatever it is, running, writing, whatever. Well, so now I'm going to, I'm going to let our audience get to know you a little bit better. I've given you a little bit of me and perhaps just to hear and D2, this is so cool for me to hear literally from Steven. It's okay. You can share priorities. You can be a professional in more than one area. That's super gratifying. And I think for me, very liberating knowing that I was just standing there this morning in my bedroom at O Dark 30 wrestling with this and that that's not unnatural or perhaps even that surprising. And you can be a professional in multiple areas at the same time. So Stephen, now you think about where you are, not just in your career, but in your ability to influence and be significant in the lives of, of so many. And it would be easy for us just because of the tenets of this podcast to talk about the war of art, to talk about turning pro, but you've also done fiction. I mentioned the legend of Bagger Vance. I talked about some of the other titles for which you're responsible during our introduction. I love the fact that, of course, Bagger Vance indicated, and it was a story from the state of Georgia, but there's also, you know, other things that come from Hollywood that are, you know, works that people would recognize by film title, perhaps are, are cult classics with like Above the Law or King Kong Lives, <laughs> other things that you've been part of things that I already mentioned that have so much impact in areas that are important to us, even if we're not involved with them, like the U.S. military, the warrior ethos, and some of the work you're doing. How do you choose what you turn pro on every day or what things that you are a professional week in and week out or perhaps year in and year out? Um, I, I really try to be as much of a professional in everything I do as I can. But certainly I'm, I'm a professional writer. So that's, you know, other than, you know, relationships and family, that's the most important thing for me. And, um, and I find that, you know, if, if, I, if I don't uh, hit that button every day, I'm not very nice to be around. <laughs> so um, I definitely 
have my hours blocked out and I will work every day just like Stephen King, 365 days a year. And um, I'm not sure that's answering your question, Mike, but... Uh, uh, and well, blocking out time, I mean, that shows how you're going to prioritize. Obviously, you mentioned the importance of relationships to you and whether it's a screenplay or a follow-up, I know you do you know, blogs, you, you put out something each Wednesday. In fact, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask you about a recent Wednesday writing where you gave real credit to the South. Obviously you mentioned being from the Northeast. I know you're out West at this point. So I'd even love to have you talk a little bit about, you know, what it is like week in and week out to commit yourself to your craft and then determine what you're going to put out for the rest of us to enjoy and do something with. How do you set your own priorities? Well, you know, as a writer, you obviously work on, you know, one project at a time, right? You go from one book to the next book to the next book. You do. So you don't have, you don't once, have multiple things going at the same time. I think that's a great lesson for all occasionally, of us. Yeah, occasionally I do, but primarily I, I, I just want to do one thing at a time. Um, and, uh, you know, the big difference or one of the big differences between turn between being an amateur and being a pro is also sort of the, uh, there's a parallel difference between being an, and you know this Mike better than I, being an entrepreneur or working for somebody else. And when you work for somebody else, or if you're in the military or you're a fireman or whatever, your day is structured from by somebody else. Somebody else tells you what time to get up or if you work at Ford Motor Company, right? They tell you what time you have to show up for your shift and what do you have to wear, and when you can go to the bathroom, and when you can eat, and all that sort of stuff, and when you can go home. But when you're an entrepreneur, when you're a writer, or you own your own business, you have to go from externally imposed discipline to self-discipline. And that is a huge, once a huge step, and once you've sort of learned that and flipped that switch in your mind, then training, in the athletic sense, is not so hard. Because you're now your own boss and you understand that the schedule that you're going to train on is set by you. You decide and you're responsible and you hold yourself accountable to that. And I'm sure that as an entrepreneur, that's what you do, Mike. Um, now, with all, with, all, with all respect, I actually have to run out of here. I told you I was going to be friends to go to a movie. So uh, I will... Uh, well, we yeah, will let we'll, we have maybe one more question and then we'll move on. Yes, absolutely. We'll let you go. We'll just we'll do one last question. And the reason that I wanted to do this last, you mentioned that resistance feeds on fear. Of course, you talk about your greatest hits where resistance lives and we can talk about turning professional and all these other ways to help us get past it. But you do indicate that resistance feeds on fear. We experience resistance as fear, but fear of what? And you put that question out there. And for people who read this book, it indicates all the things that we could fear. But I'm going to leave the question with you. But fear of what? And knowing that it is scary for people right now who are saying, I'm going to turn pro tomorrow. I am going to do that race in July, even though I've never taken a step before. How do we get past that fear that obviously accompanies the resistance? I mean, there's, there's no way, it's like the Nike slogan, just do it, right? There's no way really to train or to overcome fear other than to, to just do it, to overcome it. Um, and I certainly yield to it a lot of times, but it's very important, I think, to recognize that life in many ways is really about fear. If we say how, uh, if we're going to run a marathon, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of crapping out after half a mile? Are we afraid of failure? Are we afraid of embarrassing ourselves? Are we afraid of, uh, I don't know what, but I think that the real, the deep fear of all is fear of success and fear that we really are worthy of our dreams, that we really are what we imagine we could be. And I'm not sure why that is so terrifying, but I think it's kind of the master fear of all. Uh, because maybe it's because if we really are as worthy as we think we might be, then we have to live up to that on, on every level, mm -hmm. you know? So um, 
I, I think that fear of success, the fear that we may have as much ability and as much perseverance and as much courage as we believe we might, that's the scariest thing of all. He is Stephen Pressfield. What a gift to our community. Thank you so much for being part of this, Stephen, and to everyone. We'll be right back after this brief message to make sure that we have our next steps to conquer the resistance. Running doesn't have to be hard and injuries don't have to be a part of your running experience. Learn how to run better through Big Peach Running Company's Transform Running Workshops. In this three-hour session, you'll learn three simple elements that not only improve your form, but also reduce the chances of injury, allowing you to run faster and make running more enjoyable. Sign up at BigPeachRunningCo.com and become the runner you've always thought you could be. And welcome back to the Ron ATL Podcast D2. I am just so jacked up. My goodness, someone who has had such an awesome influence on me in my professional life, even to some degree in my personal life and choices I make in terms of how to spend my time and hobbies that I pursue to be able to get real live coaching directly from him on something like turning pro and pacing my life with my priorities and putting it alongside that. So cool. How about for you? What What about you? What did you take from that conversation? Well, I mean, I think the the timing of the conversation is just perfect right now. We start the new year and everyone has resolutions and it's always that getting started. How do you get started? How do you move forward? And then how do you stay with it? And I think, you know, resistance, as he said, was, you know, there's these, it's mental, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, like gravity is a resistance, you know, resistance training. That's all it is. It's just pushing and pulling up against gravity, right? And getting out of bed in the first thing in the morning, that's gravity to get you up and, and moving it on your feet. But there's things that, you know, we'll talk ourselves out of, whether it's the weather, whether it's, you know, it's, I'm tired or the bed's comfy, it's cold outside. Those are all things that's resistance. And, you know, as he said, it's, it's really mental. It's, it's, it's a, I think, you know, it could be fear of failure. Sure. As he mentioned, for sure. And he did mention that. And I think for most people, it's fear of failure. It's like, well, what if I'm not good enough? I'm not strong enough. I'm not fast enough. Um, you know, doubting yourself of what you could be of that potential. But then there's also what he mentioned was the, you know, fear of success. Now that I've succeeded, if I do succeed, I will be expected to do this more often and, 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 and maybe even go further or above and set newer and higher, you know, and harder goals for myself. And I think that's, I think it's a, it's a balance of both depending on the individual and what their background is. And it's just, you know, sort of kind of like I said, I mean, it's like, you just got to go out there and just do it. Indeed. And, and I'm going to come back to that. Just do it on Nike. For those of you who were just getting to know Stephen for the first time, you can learn more about him at stephenpressfield.com. P-R-E-S-S-F-I-E-L-D. That's stephenpressfield.com. His company is blackirishbooks.com. You can find everything that he's written and so much more, including getting a weekly blog from him that will certainly inspire you. But yes, he did manage to bring in a reference we can appreciate given our relationship with Nike. Just do it. How timely was that? Oh yeah, that's very, very timely. And I mean, as you said, you know, speaking of Nike, I mean, we've got a, um, a new shoot from Nike that, you know, they're really excited about. And there seems to be a lot of research behind it. Um, they did a lot of uh, independent research on uh, biomechanics and injury prevention and basically said, you know, over, you know, several decades, injury rates has remained the same. And they started looking at shoes and, you know, maybe the way we've been designing shoes and the way shoes have been and the way we thought about biomechanics and shoes, um, isn't right because the injuries haven't gotten any, any better. We've, we haven't reduced injuries. They've remained the same for the most part. So they came up and, um, with a new shoe called the Nike react infinity run. And it's the design of it is, um, unique for Nike because it's, they're going into that higher stack height shoe, a lot more cushioning, um, a rocker type of plate, you know, very similar to now. I think it's a lot of companies are starting to kind of go in that route. But the thing about this particular shoe is that it has 24% more React foam than any other shoe that they con you know, uh, currently has React foam. So, and by having 24% more, they were able to realize that that's kind of the key where it's providing the right amount of cushioning and protection, but still not uh, degrading the amount of 
uh, responsiveness and still the ability to maintain um, you know, or reduce injury rates. And then the it does have that rocker type, which kind of smooths that transition through the foot. But I think the wider base, you know, where it's wider, especially through the midfoot, is where you're going to see that additional protection and stability without having a denser or a medial post, which is, has been the traditional way of kind of correcting or trying to correct a control over pronation. And now Nike's saying, that this is not something that you need to do. Pronation is something that occurs naturally. We shouldn't control it, but we shouldn't create a more, um, you know, stable base by widening that shoe. And I, I know I've tested a couple of shoes, you know, you know, like the Nike 4% when that first came out and it's very narrow right underneath the arch. And it just feels like you can roll over very, you know, easily. So having a, a midsole that's wider just creates a more stable platform. So the idea behind it is like, you know, Injury rates will, will drop. The interesting thing about it as well is, and this is, you know, once again, coming from Nike, so, but the, they've tested this shoe and they've been able to run up to 600 miles in it. So the React foam is very durable is what they're saying. Um, it's a, instead of being um, injected with air, it's, it's nitrogen, so it's using a gas, so it's a little bit more resilient. So that'll be interesting to kind of find out. It's like, will it really last 600 you know, miles? Because if it does, you're getting more miles for your dollar. Sure. And we certainly recognize this is not an inexpensive purchase. And we have shoes, of course, in our stores that are not inexpensive. And oftentimes what we'll say, rightfully so, is that when they're more expensive, you're going to get luxury features. And certainly if you can just say that this shoe that's priced at $150 is more comfortable than the one that's priced at $115. Dollars. Well, the cost per mile from 115 to 150, man, go ahead and do it. You're going to appreciate each mile that much. This one now says spend the money, get more durability perhaps. Right. I mean, at, it's a $160 shoe, so it, it's definitely not cheap, but it's not really expensive when you start thinking about some of these newer, higher price models that are going in 200 and $250. Um, the, you know, so that's kind of cool. The, the interesting thing about it, and especially for those individuals that have said, oh, I can't wear Nike cause they're just too narrow. This is not a narrow shoe. So not- it, it does have a fly knit upper. They've opened it up a little bit more. And so initial reports from people that have had issues in the past, Nike being narrow says that is not an issue, not in this particular shoe. Not a narrow shoe, not a knit shoe. This is for many people, perhaps. I know you'll continue to keep us updated once we get that shoe on your foot, perhaps a review later on. By the time this episode releases, it will be in our stores for everybody to try on after a little bit of a cloaked release where information and pairs were very scarce. We're lucky to have them. You should come check them out. But D2, that's not the only new model that's coming out, including from our hometown heroes here to the north in Norcross. We've got some other cool models that are coming out. Right. So the from you know Mizuno, who's based right here in, in Norcross, um, we have the um, Wave Inspire 16 and the Wave Knit Inspire version as well. So both have been being released at the same time. So Wave Knit is uh, Mizuno's you know knitted upper. So it just feels a little bit more like a sock. It has it conforms to your foot a little bit better. So I think that's kind of like the trend of what a lot of manufacturers are providing. And I can say that I prefer a knit upper to a standard mesh upper. Um, so that's new. We definitely, you know, I mean, it's Inspire from Mizuno is, is one of their top selling shoes. So, you know, we've already got people that have seen it and heard that it was released and they are saying, when can I come in and try it? When do you have it? It's available now. So all of our seven stores have them. That's awesome. And if you were going to say, you mentioned how it's one of their most popular shoes. If you're going to look back over 15 years at Big Peach Running Company, I would say the Wave Inspire probably makes our top 10 perhaps top five list, given the fact that it now has been around for 16 versions. If you have the Runbird on your running shoe and you're not sure which model you have, check the tongue or wherever the term might be. It's very possible you have a Wave Inspire. Come check out the latest version. On a different note, given the time of year, we are clearing out any winter, holiday, fall season apparel we have left. We don't have that much left, but I believe that we have major discounts on anything that has long sleeves and was designed for October through the beginning of the year since we're quickly getting into spring. 
That's right. Yeah, I think I think winter missed Georgia. Um, it's been rather warm. I think today, well, as we're taping, it's going to hit you know seventy degrees. But it has been raining, and we will get the cold weather again. But it has been a relatively warmer winter, I would say. So we are clearing all of our uh, winter apparel at forty percent off. That's that's awesome for somebody who has that special person on Valentine's Day or perhaps a gift that wasn't part of the holidays, but it's their birthday or it's a day that you want to remember them. Think about the winter apparel sale at Big Peach Running Company. Lots for your money there for sure. But the other thing that we'll continue to talk about D2 until it is here and gone are the Olympic marathon trials fast approaching. We've had so much fun working on it. We're still not going to divulge all the details, but we can continue to tease. Well, if we had all the details, we would divulge. I mean, and it's a work in progress. I mean, let's be I honest. I love it. I mean, you know, first of all, I mean, the Olympic marathon trials are, is just huge. This is, if you're a runner, this is your Super Bowl. This is a Super Bowl week that we want to kind of, you know, hype up. Um, I've, uh, I know that we're probably going to see a lot more uh, people coming from out of town. I'd say probably just from the southeast alone, we're going to get quite a few people that are just going to drive into Atlanta to see the marathon trials. Um, you know, I, I know I've, you know, people that I know are going to come in. We've got groups that have contacted us that are like, Hey, you know, we're bringing a big group and where, where, what's a great place to eat pasta or, you know, and, 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 you know, and just have activities to do and we're going to be in town. And so everyone's bringing in big groups and we're trying to create that atmosphere and just be hospitable and just be the good, you know, Southern, you know, uh, you know, hospitality that, that people have, have, have known. And so we want to create events, especially around our Midtown store because our Midtown store is right on the course. So we're working on a couple things that we aren't quite prepared to announce yet, but we, we, we are working with Saucony. We will have a, a big event with Saucony, um, on the day of, and, and a couple of days leading beforehand. Um, so we will have a viewing party, we still are working on the details on who and how to get into it because it will be limited access. It will be a VIP type of experience. So it will be sort of like, I believe the details are there'll be catered food and drinks and TVs and tents and all this. So we'll have a whole area kind of blocked off. Um, but details of that are still being developed. Hopefully by the next podcast, we'll have all those details together and we'll share it to you, uh, to, to everyone in our audience and through every form of communication because, you know, it's, it's going to be awesome. I mean, this is, I think the largest field um, that has ever we've, the U.S. has ever had as far as trying to qualify for the Olympics, and that's awesome. Um, to be paired up with the public's, you know, uh, Atlanta Marathon the following day, awesome. Very, very cool. For those of you who do not want to miss the details, if you're not already getting our weekly newsletter, it is not advertorial. It is real content. You can sign up for that newsletter on the homepage of bigpeachrunningco.com. That'll keep you informed on much for sure, but you're not going to want to miss when we do have all of the details. And D2, we're going to continue to just plow into that Olympic marathon trials. Our next episode, this time we had Stephen Pressfield. Somebody said, wow, I didn't see that coming on the Run ATL podcast. We have no boundaries. Our tenants to inform, to inspire, to empower, and to encourage. And if somebody can do that for us, do that for those who we serve, then we want to give them that platform. We're going to transition from Stephen Pressfield and all the serious work that comes with talking about the resistance and overcoming it and conquering our fears and getting to work to bringing in the next episode of the Run ATL podcast, The Funny Runner. That's right. We're going to have Brittany Charbonneau as our featured conversation. She is one of those D2 just mentioned who did qualify for the Olympic marathon trials. She will be here in Atlanta running that race on February the 29th, that leap day. She'll be here. But in the meantime, it's cool to know that D2, she balances the training she's doing right now with her work as a stand-up comedian and someone who is pursuing her own goals in and around Hollywood and that idea of being someone who can make us laugh, do it on stage, do it on the big screen, and do it alongside a really serious and committed running routine. That's awesome, man. I, I do think that that's probably going to kick off a series of maybe 
you know, athletes that have qualified for the Olympic uh, marathon trials. So we'll have a theme kind of going for the next couple of uh, episodes. That's awesome. So don't miss that for sure. You'll want to be back here in just two weeks to see if she can make us and you laugh. The funny runner will be with us. In the meantime, let me say a big thank you to all of our listeners and everyone in this great state of Georgia who live out the teachings, the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We'll continue to thank him for all that he is even today. In the meantime, we're gonna give you the same encouragement that we always do, that we know to be true, and that we know is part of overcoming the resistance. And that is that we wish you the best miles to be covered on foot. So long, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. 